All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And today we are going to tackle verses 1 through 16. All right, uh, I'll begin by reading God's word. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further or farther and come to the oak of Tabar, or Tabar. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgah, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave, and this is speaking of Saul, uh, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these Signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, Who is their father? Therefore became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. In verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Amen. All right, so we have a lot to cover, and I'm just going to get into it. I'd like to spend some time introducing this passage and what we're going to talk about today, and then we'll get to uh, breaking down uh, the important aspects of this passage for us today. First of all, when we look at something like this, uh, especially all of chapter 10. Uh, we are seeing how important it, 
this passage is to us as we look upon the world today, right? As we interact with the world and as we live here as Christians within the world, it's important for us to know that uh, we serve a sovereign God. That's something that we can never forget. We must always remember that. But it's very challenging to remember that, especially in times of trouble and turmoil, right? That's, that's what we tend to forget, that we serve a sovereign God. Um, some of us are worried about everything that is going on in the world. You may be worried about politics. You may be worried about uh, the inflation that's going on. And there is inflation. Tell you what, when my wife and I went to the grocery store the other day, we spent $700 on groceries because we needed groceries and we needed household items. I, I told her we broke a Garcia record that day, spending on groceries and household items, $700. Okay. So, yeah, we see all this stuff and we're like, wow, what's going on here? Things are changing so fast. Things are getting out of control. I don't know this world anymore. I don't know people anymore. People are so everything's so dangerous. Everything's so negative. I can't even watch the news because it's it's all bias. You know, everything is just for us. It's it could be nerve wracking. But we must never forget that the Lord is seated on his throne. And that's what this passage helps to remind us of it, it it reminds us that the lord is sovereign because here as we read this passage we must understand the context what's going on here the nation of israel is struggling with similar things that we are struggling with today see evil evil doesn't change evil just re, it just goes on and on and on it, it it comes in as something else but it's still the same thing generation after generation you know so for us, there is hope, and this chapter reminds us that the Lord is still on his throne. And it shows us that the hand of God is moving to bring about, moving everything to bring about his will uh, in our world. Also, we must know that from his involvement, especially here in this text, that he governs the world through his providence. And because the Lord is always on his throne and he is always uh, at work, we can rest assured that we are taken care of. And no matter what happens today, no matter what it is, how bad it is, that it's not outside of the Lord's control. You see, um, as we look at chapter 10, I just want to remind you of a couple of things. First of all, we must remember that Israel had asked God for a king, but not in the way that they should have. They, they wanted a, a king um, right there, right then. They wanted a king that would rule over them. And actually, at the same time, they were rejecting God. And so they asked for this king in a sinful way. Instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of waiting on the Lord and his timing, they said, Lord, we don't think you're doing, basically, we don't think you're doing a good job. Um, the man that you appointed to us, he's, he's already old. His sons are worthless. And we need a king to rule over us. So in essence, what they were seeking was an idol, because anytime we place something in God's place, that is, that is an idol for us, when, and we are worshiping it. So as they were requesting a king, they were rejecting God, they were seeking after an idol to follow. And when we know the nation of Israel's history, we understand that this is something they did often. They did it over and over and over again, all the way back to you know, the exodus where Moses left and then they formed this golden calf to follow. So this is nothing new for them. And in fact, God brought that up to them that they continue to fall into this cycle of idol worship. So God gave them what they asked for, but it wasn't the result that they wanted. 
It didn't work out like the way they thought it would. How are we humbled whenever that happens to us? We ask God for something, God gives it to us, and then we're praying that God takes it away, right? Because it just didn't work out the way we thought. Well, that's what's going on here with the nation of Israel. Israel, and even after God warned them about the trouble their king would cause them, they still wanted what their hearts wanted. They still wanted this idol, this tangible king to follow around. Now, when we go back to chapter 9, we see that the Lord reveals who will be this first human king of the Israelites. His name is Saul. And one thing that, we, uh, that I preached on last week and that we focused on within chapter 9 is that the qualities of Saul were pointed out. And number one, he came from a wealthy family. Uh, he was handsome and he was taller than everybody else. And you'll see that this is what the nation of Israel celebrates. This is when they, when they see him for the first time and, and, and he's announced as their king, everybody cheers because it's like, yes, you've picked the right one. He looks like a king. And so those are the qualities that are mentioned about uh, Saul, but nothing else other than that, nothing that he was a wise man, that he, he had a, you know, discernment of God, anything like that. Um, it was basically that he was uh, wealthy, he was good looking, and he was tall. So from a physical standpoint, he seems to fit the mold of what many think a good leader is. But from a spiritual standpoint, it was a different story. Saul, as we will see as we continue to read, Saul is a man who lacks godly discernment, and he is a man who lacks faith. And this is the man who is appointed king. Uh, he is a man who disobeys the Lord continuously. He causes trouble for Israel. And when you start looking at Saul and you start looking at the, the, the actions of God in Scripture, here's a question that comes to my mind. I don't know if you think this, but this is what I thought. Why would God choose a king like that for Israel, especially the first king? Why would God do that? As I sat there and thought about it, I, I, I thought about three things that, that came, you know, these three things came to my mind immediately. Number one, he, he chose Saul because that's who the nation of Israel deserved. That's the first thing I thought of. That's who they deserved. I mean, God was their king and he was still their king at this time, but they didn't recognize him as their king. They wanted another king to follow. They rejected God. They asked for an idol. That's who they deserved. God was giving them over to that. It's almost like when God gives someone over to their sin, we might say, wait a second, that's not fair. No, that's what they deserve. Not only they, that's what we deserve. But we're given grace. That's what grace means, right? Getting something you don't deserve. So God was giving them what they deserve, number one. Number two, God would show them what happens when they reject him and they follow their own hearts. That's the other thing that I saw in this. Why would God give them a king like that? Well, follow your heart and, and we'll see what God allows to happen in your life so that you can come back to him. And then number three, God, as we look at the Bible and we see, we see the point of, of the Bible, the theology of the Bible, we would see that God gave them this king because 
we, initially, God would establish the first earthly kingdom with a worthless king, almost like a, an Adam figure, right? The same way that Adam failed humanity, he would establish uh, the earthly kingdom with a worthless king only to eventually save it with the last and only worthy king, Jesus Christ. So we see this Adam figure in, in, in Saul, and the same way Christ came to redeem his people to undo what Adam did, we see Christ coming to be the worthy king that Saul should have been. So we see these three things immediately, and there's probably more, but those are the things that I saw as, as I asked myself that question, why would God do this? So my hope is that as we look at this text, and as you hear the words that I have prepared for you, that you can all realize that there is nothing wasted with the Lord. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter if there's something horrible happening to you today, if it happened to you in the past, or, or if it happens to you tomorrow. Um, there is nothing wasted with the Lord. Everything that occurs is under his sovereign control. And that means it's being governed by him towards a definite end. God has a purpose, not only for humanity, but if we want to bring it down to the personal level, God has a purpose for your life. And it's not what you think. You know, because we hear that and we're like, well, God has a purpose for my life. That's awesome. He's going to give me what I want. No, God has a purpose for your life, and it's to bring glory to himself and to save his people. That, that's the ultimate purpose of God, to bring glory to himself and save his people. That's the hope that we have. That's what we're waiting for. So I, I hope that I can communicate that well. I want to start off with verse 1. And this is, um, first of all, we start to see God's sovereign activity here with uh, the coronation of, of Saul. Now, when you look at the inauguration of Saul's kingship, it's broken down into two parts. The very first part is a private ceremony. And that's what we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 16. A private ceremony, only a few people there. And the public does not know at this point that Saul will be king, right? Not, not at this point. It has not been announced yet. And so verses 1 through 16 is this private uh, service that, they, that, that, is, that is had. And then on the second part is a public pronouncement of his kingship. And that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. And that's going to conclude chapter 10. Now, during this private coronation, Samuel takes a flask of oil and he anoints the head of Saul. Now, this is the first time it's done for a king because this is the first king of Israel. But this practice is usually done on priests whenever they take uh, that office. And so what that indicates is that uh, it, it is a blessing by a, a person representing the Lord and it is a blessing to show that the man that is being anointed is God's chosen vessel for that office. Right. And we we see that because Samuel confirms it. Uh, this is what he says to Saul in verse one. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Well, but Samuel is the one doing the anointing. No, he's a representative of God anointing Saul and therefore, it is the Lord who is anointing Saul to be prince over the people of Israel. Notice it doesn't say king. The word there is, is, is it means the same thing. It means a ruler. It means a ruler. In some commentaries, it, they, 
they bring up the fact that even Samuel was having trouble with anointing Saul because he just didn't see him as a king and he would call him a prince. I'm not sure if that says that, but that that same word in the Hebrew just means a ruler. So the thought is, is that the Lord is anointing Saul to be the ruler of his people, not Saul's people, of his people, Israel. Now, although it was the people who wanted a human king, we must we must look at what scripture says. It is God who is selecting the king for them. And I will tell you that this was no surprise to God. That's one thing that you'll never see in scripture is God surprised. Ever. That's one thing you'll never see in your own life. God God doesn't get surprised. See, long before the people even asked for a king, the Lord had already said he would establish an earthly throne in which the Savior of the world would come through. I want to read from you Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, I'm going to go through this fairly quick, so if you're taking notes, you can just write the passage down. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 15. Unless you're really quick with the Bible. Okay, so Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15. It says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, I'll read that passage, and this is from generations before. This is Deuteronomy is written to after the Exodus to remind the people of what God had done for them, taking them out of slavery and leading them through the desert, providing for them. And, and this is the book that is reminding them of all of God's promises, his covenant, the law, everything. So in essence, this book is looking backwards, but in many places, it's looking forward. And this is one of the places where it's looking forward. It's a prophecy of what will happen to the nation of Israel once they get into the promised land, once they get into this land that God had given them. God, in his infinite wisdom, already knew that the Israelites were going to ask for a king, not just ask for a king, but to ask for a king like the other nations. And that's exactly what they did in the previous chapters of, of 1 Samuel. They went up to Samuel and they said, Samuel, you're old, your sons are worthless. Give us a king like all the other nations that we may follow him. And that boom, right? It just blows your mind when you see things like that. How specific that prophecy was. And now we are seeing it take place here in scripture. And notice that God says, you may indeed set a king over you, but I'm going to choose him. I'm going to let it happen, right? So we see that the whole thing about this earthly king is, in itself, it's not sinful. This is what God had planned all along. It's the rejection of him that was sinful. That's, what, that's where the nation of Israel went wrong. Um, so it was the Lord who chose Saul as king, and then he gave instructions concerning the purpose of his kingship. Now let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Look at verse 1 again. This is what he tells uh, Saul. You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, Saul reigned over the people just like the Lord said he would. But he did not do it rightly. He did not do it according to the word of the Lord. So we see his failures there. Also, we can see in verse one, he's called to save 
the Israelites from the Philistines. That means he was called to defeat the Philistines once and for all. Well, as we continue to read, we will see that Saul would win some battles. But ironically, Saul would lose his life in battle against the Philistines. That's how his kingdom would end. That's how his reign would end. He would lose his life to the the, the nation, to the people that he was supposed to defeat. Now, in essence, when we look at all what's going on here in verse 1, it's a sad day. It's a sad day for the nation of Israel. And you know what? Nobody knows it. Or at least it doesn't tell us in Scripture that anybody knows it. Maybe there were some who saw Saul's character and they were afraid of what he would do as a king. But it seems like the, the nation at, in general wanted Saul as a king because of his physical attributes. So this is a sad day in the history of the nation of Israel. And yet, this is so important, and yet the Lord sovereignly reigned. And yet the, the, the sovereignty of God's throne was still established. It's not as if God lost control, but it was him who was working all these things according to the purpose of his will. See, today we tend to look around at the events unfolding before us and we might think, why is this happening? Or we might think, where is the Lord? You might be looking at the nation, our nation as a whole, and you're like, where is the Lord? You may be looking at the state of, of the visible church, and you're like, where is the Lord? You may be looking at your family, and you're thinking, where is the Lord? Maybe it comes down just to your life and what's been happening lately, and you're thinking, where is the Lord? See, the answer to that question is seen in verse 1. The Lord has not gone away. The Lord is still here. The Lord is still reigning on his throne. He is in sovereign control of his creation. Yeah, things might be chaotic. But the Lord has a purpose for all things. And when I look at verse one, I must realize that we must trust his word And his timing. Because that's what the Israelites did not do. They were warned. They were warned about what would happen. And they did not believe it. They were told that this was a sin. And yet they wanted a king when they wanted it. We have to learn from what happens in the past. And we must trust the word of God. And we must trust his timing. We must not reject the Lord and search for an idol to save us. And sometimes that's what we do. We want something tangible in our lives so that we can ask them a question or so that we can depend on them so that they can do something for us. And that's where it's so important that we walk by faith and not by sight. We follow the eternal king of glory no matter what is happening around us. We must remember that our help comes from the Lord. Now, let's go on to verses 2 through 6. Right after we see this uh, private ceremony taking place um, and Saul is anointed, 
there are some signs that are given to Saul to confirm his calling. Um, There are three signs that are given to him, actually. Sign number one, we see in verse two. And one thing I want to point out is the specificity of of these signs and how awesome it is that God confirms a calling in us or God confirms what he is doing with the way he chooses to do so. And then in verse 2, uh, we see that Saul, it is, told, it is told to Saul that he will be met by two men. Now, not three men, not a group of men, not five men, two men. So after he leaves this place, he's going to be met by two men. And not only that, he will be at Rachel's tomb when he meets them. Not, not a step ahead, not a step behind. This is where he will be whenever he meets them. That's sign number one. And not only that, but they're going to have a specific message for him. Uh, look, at, look at verse two. It's going to be a message from the father, Saul's father, because it was Saul's father in chapter nine who sent him away to go look for these lost donkeys. And basically the message is, hey, your, your, your father, the donkeys are taken care of. Your father's afraid for you now. Where have you been? It's been a while. That's the message that's going to be given to Saul. Now, sign number two, we see in verses three through four. After that, Saul will meet three men, right? And they will share two loaves of bread with him and no more. But see, the thing is, is that these men have more than two loaves of bread. They have three loaves of bread and they have wine with them, right? But they're not going to share that. They're going to come to Saul and they're going to share two loaves of bread and they're going to keep the wine for themselves. Smart decision. And so they they only share two loaves of bread with Saul. That is the second sign. Right. And then the third sign, which is in verses five through six, Saul is actually going to be able to go to go into the presence of the Philistines. And here's here's the miracle here, that he's going to go to this garrison of the Philistines and they will not seek to harm him. That's that's part of that sign. But also, when he's there, he's going to meet three, not regular prophets, three singing prophets, right? So he's going to meet three singing prophets and at that time, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon Saul And he will start prophesying through song. Saul is told that when the spirit of the Lord enters him, he will become another man. Now, we have to understand what scripture is saying here. This is not this is not biologically that he's going to become another man. Like his DNA is not going to change. He's not going to become someone else, so to speak, from a physical standpoint. But he is going to be another man in ability. Inability. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord will be uh, will inhabit him and will be in control of his ability. He will give him more than he needs. Scripture also says that as soon as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Now, what does this mean? Saul is a very complex biblical character, a biblical person, because Nowhere in scripture is anyone certain that Saul was actually a believer. Nowhere. Um, There are many who think he wasn't. But then on the other side, you cannot, you 
you cannot deny that because at the same time, you know, we don't know man's heart. And so we never know if Saul was a believer or not. That's one of the things we'll find out on the, on the other side of heaven when we get there. But when we read scripture and it tells us that the Lord gave him another heart, we must be careful not to see that this was a heart change as in regeneration because it wasn't. Not at least at this point. And the reason why we know that is because the spirit only indwells Saul temporarily. And the spirit only indwells Saul in order to fulfill the Lord's purpose. Later, as, and we'll get there, but in chapter 16, verse 14, we see that at the end of Saul's kingship, the Lord takes his spirit from him and then he puts a demonic spirit in him. So we know this wasn't at this point in time a, a, a spirit or a change of heart as in regeneration. This was God fulfilling his purpose in Saul. He was giving him abilities that he didn't have before. Why? To serve as king. To serve as king. Now, we know that Saul would not do this perfectly. In fact, he would do it horribly. But he himself did not have, even have the ability to be king until the Lord gave that to him. And we know that Saul didn't have the ability because, man, there is, first of all, there is a lack of regeneration from Saul. At least there is a lack of, of the fruit that would normally be seen with regeneration when it comes to Saul. Um, Saul is given these signs because he is a man who lacks faith and he lacks initiative. Right? When someone lacks faith in the Bible, they lack initiative in the Bible, God gives them a sign to confirm what is going on. Now, if you go back through chapter 9 and you read that on your own time, you'll see that Saul does not make wise choices. He's very lackadaisical and he doesn't even know who Samuel is. He's supposed to be an Israelite. Samuel is his high priest. That's like one of you not knowing who Pastor Ricky is, Pastor David is, or Pastor Laramie is. You've been coming here for a long time and you're like, who's that person speaking to me? That, that's, that's what Saul, he's like, when they're looking for these donkeys and his, the person who's traveling with him says, hey, let's go and meet the prophet. Let's go meet the priest. And he's like, who is that? He wasn't a man of faith. See, when we look at our chapter today, after all these signs take place, look at Saul's disposition. He's unimpressed. He's unmoved. In chapter 6, or excuse me, in verse 16, towards the end of uh, our text today, we see that his uncle, after all these signs take place, his uncle meets with him. He comes out of nowhere. That's one thing about this story. This uncle just comes out of nowhere. And uh, he's talking to Saul, and he's trying to find out where Saul was. And Saul says, oh, I was speaking to Samuel. And the uncle's like, wow, you were speaking to Samuel? What did Samuel say? And Saul casually mentions the donkeys. He's like, yeah, he was telling me where the donkeys were, but he didn't say anything else. Saul was just commissioned and anointed to be king of Israel. You think that would have been like, oh, I'm king now. I'm supposed to be the king. Yeah, that's what Samuel told me. No, he's just like, oh, he told me. Uh, that donkeys were okay, and that's, that's about it, really. You ever, speak to a, uh, you ever speak to a teenager and ask them how their day is? I'm sorry. All right. 
You barely get a word out of them, right? Hey, how's your day? Hey, you know, how was, how was, how was dinner? You know, anything. It's just, don't care. Don't, don't want to talk to you at this point. That's the that's attitude we see in Saul. So Saul is unimpressive to us. We're not there. We're not there to see him physically. Maybe we would have been impressed with him physically. But from a, a spiritual standpoint, he's unimpressive. Then we go back to that question, why would God choose someone like this? Well, by choosing a man like Saul as king, it's as if the Lord is saying, I do as I please. You don't tell me what to do. Who are you, old man, to question me? I do as I please, and nothing and no one can stop me. When you're looking at everything that's going on in the world around you, you may ask, why, Lord, why does this happen? I do as I please. Nothing can stop me. Kind of reminds me of uh, Jesus as he was making his way to Jerusalem. And as he was going into the city, uh, the, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 40, that as he was drawing near to the Mount of Olives, we had the whole multitude of his disciples. It says that they began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. This is the triumphal entry. And for all the, they were praising him for all the mighty works that he had, he had, they had seen him do. And they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And this is what he answered. I tell you, if these were silent, meaning his disciples, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And we are instruments of God. We are vessels and nothing more. We do not have the right to question God. He does as he pleases. You see, there is a great confusion that goes on with ministry. And this is a, 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 a man-centered theology where there are so many people, so many Christians that think that God needs a qualified man or a qualified woman in order to work with them, in order to do something in their lives. And we throw around this word qualified, like as if we have something to offer God. The Lord does not need qualified men and he does not need qualified women to serve him because he is the one who qualifies us. We sit there and we lack faith and we're like, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Whatever the reason is. And we don't realize that he is the one who enables us to carry out the calling that he has given us in our lives. Never before did I ever think that I was going to be preaching for a living. Ever. I have all kind of learning problems. I have all kind of speaking problems. I stuttered for a long, the longest time. I still, sometimes when I'm preaching, I trip up on my words because sometimes my tongue feels like it inflates like a sponge in my mouth. Then I can't get the words out. And even when I get nervous, when I start doing that, I'll start to sweat. I'll start to get nervous and I start to do it more. 
even to this day. Moses, when he was commissioned, he's like, Lord, I, I, I can't, I don't, I'm not a man of many words. I'm not smart. We all, we all make those excuses, but we forget it is the Lord who qualifies us. That's why you can't look at somebody when they're five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. If they're a horrible kid, you can't say, man, they're going to become nothing. You can't do that. And that's why you can't look at this kid who seems to have everything together and say, man, he's going to be a great man of God. We don't know. It is God who qualifies us. So the Lord doesn't need qualified men and women. Because he is the one who gives us what we need. See, if you ever think that you are so special that the Lord should be happy to have you. Well, I'd like to tell you, you are sadly mistaken. The truth is that despite your sinful heart, you get to serve the Lord because he has chosen you and he has chosen to be gracious towards you. This was something I desperately needed this week. I was talking to Pastor Laramie last night and we were talking about other things, but I told him, man, this passage, this preparation for this sermon, it hit me right square in the nose. You ever get hit right square in the nose? You just can't stop crying, right? You just can't stop hurting. That's a very sensitive area to be hit. And that's what this passage did for me, because for the last three weeks, I've been struggling. I have been struggling spiritually, mentally, in every way I've been struggling. And I do confide in my wife, mostly in my wife. And this is something that I've been struggling with so far. And I've been confiding in her. I've been confiding. I've confided in Pastor Laramie last night. But this is something that I have sinfully kept to myself otherwise and sinfully just I wanted to hold on to it because I wanted to be angry I wanted to be mad I wanted to be frustrated and it sounds funny but this is what we do and the reason why I bring that up and the reason why this passage hit me square in the nose is because we forget we forget that everything does not depend on us I was putting so much pressure on myself to be the husband I needed to be, to be the father I needed to be, to be the pastor I needed to be, to be this, the, the student in seminary that I needed to be, to, to work outside of what I have here to provide for my family. Everything was just coming together in the last three weeks. I have been angry. And as I was looking at this, look, it's affected me so much so that it's been hard for me to prepare sermons. I thank you so much for those who pray for me as I preach. But, you know, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, basically, basically he said that preaching was a wonderful privilege. Preparing the sermon was a dread. That's the way I feel sometimes. It was hard for me to get in the word and to think of you and to like think of a way to feed you spiritually while I'm struggling so much. And the Lord this passage hit me square in the nose, and, and this is what it reminded me of. It's not about you. It's not about you. You're doing this to yourself. You're angry because you want to be angry. This is selfishness that you have to deal with. This is sinful pride that you have. And I was calibrated last night. I'm thankful for that. 
See, we must not get to the point where we think that God needs us. He didn't need Saul. That's evident. Saul was worthless. That's us. We might look at Saul and say, man, I could have been a better man for God. No, you couldn't have. No, you wouldn't have. God does not need us. See, it's, it's tempting to think that this is my ministry. Oh, the Lord needs a man like me because if I weren't up here to preach, I don't know what would happen to this church. Right? You can think the same thing in your own life. If I wasn't the father of these children, man, these, they would be lost. If I wasn't the, the, the man of God for my wife or the woman of God for my husband, he'd be lost. No, the truth of the matter is that it does not depend on you. It depends on the Lord. And so when we get carried away, it's tempting for us to say, oh, this is my ministry. This is my church. Right. When things aren't happening the way we want to or the way we want them to in our church, we're like, wait a second. I have to I have to take a stand. I have to complain because this is my church and I need to protect this church. This is not your church. You are the church. You belong to God. When we talk about church, we talk about building. And it's much more than this building. It's much more than our property. This stuff is passing away. You are the church. Or we say, oh, this is my family. This is my money. Well, there's a lot of that going on right now because look at our budget. We're over almost $9,000 in, 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 the, in the red right now. We just started in September. This is my money. No, this is my life. I get to do what I want because this is my life. I get to live it the way I want. No, we get carried away and we do things like that. Everything is the Lord's. And in him, the Bible tells us, we all move, we live, and we have our being. Do not forget that. And then I want to end it with verses 9 through 11. So we see the Lord here give... Samuel or saw these signs, and then we see this wonderful display of God's power through a very unlikely vessel. See, after these signs take place, Saul is the, the Spirit of God enters him, and we see a glimpse of God's wonderful and miraculous power through him. Look at verse 11. Um, apparently, let me see, let me make sure I don't go too far. Okay, so verse, starting in verse 9, uh, what the Bible tells us is that the Spirit of the Lord inhabits Saul, just like Samuel said he would, and he begins to prophesy. Now, well, what's going on here, though, is that Samuel is not like just given a prophetic word. He's doing it in a particular way. He's singing this prophetic word, right? Because this is a, bad, a band of prophets that meet him, and they all have instruments, and Paul just all of a sudden, or not Paul, but Saul, joins this band, and he begins to sing. Now, as he begins to sing, everybody starts to wonder who this man is. They know who he is. He's not the same man. Look at verse 11. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? 
Is Saul also among the prophets? What was happening here was that this was a different man in ability. And what Paul or what Saul was doing was he was singing in a way he had never sung before. And apparently Saul was a bad singer. Because that's exactly what they're looking at. They're looking at not only what he's saying, but how he's communicating it. And it was angelic. Couldn't believe it. Now, I want to give you a great example of this. That's like if, if I were to get up, go back here and pick up this guitar right now. And I were to get it and not many. I mean, most of you know that I cannot sing. There are a few here that don't hang around me or just sit in the back row as we're singing praise and worship. And you'll find out real quick. I'll go get that guitar. I'd come over here and I'd play it for you. And all of a sudden I sound just like an angel singing. Most of you would be like, who is this man? Is this Pastor Ricky? And that would be a proverb, right? Just like it is here in this passage. This can't be Pastor Ricky because there's no way he can sing like that. That's exactly what is happening here. So this is such a wonderful event. It's unbelievable. No one, no one can understand how, how Saul has gotten this ability. Now, the ability the Lord gave him to sing was nothing, again, that the people had ever witnessed before. And that's why they question it. God had taken Saul. Listen very carefully to this. He had taken Saul, an unbeliever. At, at this point, we know that for sure. There, you know, we can question the fact that he maintained that he stayed an unbeliever, but we know for sure at this point he's an unbeliever. He's a spo- he was a spoiled child. Uh, he was lazy. He was an underachiever. Does that sound familiar? Right. Man, that just gets right to you. God took this man, an unbeliever, spoiled, lazy, underachiever, sinful man. And he gave him the ability to do something he was not qualified or did not even have the desire to do on his own. We see the Lord's sovereignty moving in Saul's life. So. What are we to learn from this? I've already given you some points, but I want to leave you with these two. There are two questions that I have in response to seeing all of this happen in Scripture. Number one, how did the Lord do this? How did the Lord do this with Saul? Saul seems like you can't work with him. You ever have those people and you're so frustrated, you're just like, I can't, I can't work with them. I can't change them. It's so frustrating because we don't have that power. We don't have that control so how did the Lord do this? Well, he did it by the power of his might. And by the way, it was easy for him because nothing is impossible with God. If you walk away from this sermon, I want you to remember this. He doesn't need good character, good character to work with because he is the sovereign Lord. The same, you know, how did the Lord do this? The same way that the Lord worked in Saul is the same way that he worked in you. Second question. Not only how did the Lord do this, but why did the Lord do this? Well, he did it to bring about his will for his creation. 
He did it to bring about his will for his creation. It was for his glory and the ultimate good of his people. Now listen, that's very important because I said this was a sad day for the nation of Israel. It did not look like God was caring about his people. But as we continue to read the Bible, we see that this first king, this worthless king, that actually God was establishing his throne for the only worthy king who would come. Only the Lord knew that. Nobody else did. So even when things don't seem to be working out according to your desire or your definition of what working out is, you must always know that the Lord is doing things for his glory and the good of his people. Now, if you are like me and you spend a lot of time wondering how life turned out and why it's turned out this way. I do a lot of reflection and sometimes I do too much because it gets into the sinful side of things and I want to go back and change some things. You sit there and you wonder, how did I get here? And it could be negative and it could be positive. But if you're one of those people who spend a lot of time looking at your life now and you're wondering, how did I get here? I want you to look no further than the will of God. That's where you start and that's where you end. I like to borrow from Paul as he looked at his life, as he looked at his work, as he looked at his sin. He looked at the best of himself and the worst of himself. And this is what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That same thing is true for all of us who are in Christ. There is nothing wasted with the Lord. Let us pray.